Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 26 is where we're going to be this morning, as well as Exodus chapter 20. We're in the Sixth Commandment. We did one week last week. Man, it brought up some interesting conversations, I think, from what I hear. Not exactly the most pleasant conversations, but at least it was the most ethically uh, advanced uh, conversation I think I've had with uh, a community group at King's Chapel uh, to think through some of the challenging things we had to based on the Sixth Commandment last week. I even, <laughs> I even ran into somebody who was, whose friends were challenging her on whether she was, uh, it was okay for her to be packing heat in church. Uh, so, interesting conversations being had uh, about murder. Um, no one, I'm sure, here is packing heat. Just all the women, apparently, uh, from what I understand. Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 26 as well as Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. Here's what it says. Exodus 20, verse 13. Here, you'll mem- you memorize it with me. Thou shalt not commit murder. Thou shalt not murder. Good job. You've memorized the memory verse today. One whole verse already. Thou shalt not murder. Well, Matthew chapter 5 goes deeper, and that's what we're going to look at uh, this morning, verses 21 and 22. Here's what it says there. You have heard that it was said to those of old... You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the fires of hell. This ends the reading of God's holy and errant word. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but may the word of our God stand forever. Well, murder, um, it's one of those, it's of all the Ten Commandments, it's the one more than just about any others in which we feel like we've got that one. This one is simple, at least we thought it was. This, everyone thinks murder is bad. Everyone is opposed to it. Every country has laws on the books that have prohibitions against murder. There is not even anything distinctly Christian about being against murder. So many of the Ten Commandments these days are passe, they're cliche, like the idea of taking the the keeping the Sabbath holy, like what in the world is that, or adultery, whatever, like these are covetousness, I mean, we we want covetousness, right, that's good for our economy, we would say, we run on greed, these things are passe, but murder, murder we've got, murder we can handle, we can take this law, murder is is actually, we actually think it's against God's law. We all agree on that. Most people think it's this a commandment that they actually have down pat. Even after last week, the vast majority of you could sit in this room and say, yes, after even looking at all of those ethical implications of the sixth commandment about negligent homicide and abortion and euthanasia, I'm, for the most part, I'm still pretty good. But here's the truth, and the truth of Matthew 5 is this. We break the sixth commandment every Day. We are all murderers, would be the proposition one can say from Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 and 22. And here's, here's two reasons why, our main points for this morning. Last week we looked at the issue of, of murder and what it isn't and what it is. And we looked at what it isn't. Uh, so we looked at things like the issue of capital punishment briefly and self-defense uh, and, and, and war, just war, that those are things are not necessarily uh, against the sixth commandment. And then we looked at some of the implications of what it is. What is it to violate the sixth commandment? 
What does it prohibit? And we talked about things like negligent homicide and voluntary manslaughter and a cold-blooded murder, these various things. But Matthew 5 shows us why it is that we can be called, we can be considered to be murderers on a day-in and day-out basis. And the first, first is this. The first point I want to point to you this morning is to defend this statement that I've made that we are all murderers every day is that the sixth commandment prohibits not just violent acts of murder, but it actually prohibits murderous hearts. Murderous hearts. Matthew 5, 21 and 22, we just read it. And this verse goes to the heart and therefore deepens the negative commandment of the sixth commandment and goes beyond simply don't be taking lives. Jesus is saying there is more to the sixth commandment than meets the eye. He is saying that it has an intended depth that reaches down, not just into the the worst of human interactions, but the sixth commandment actually reaches into your most normal and ordinary and day-in and day-out interactions. And you know what murder looks like? It looks like anger, and it looks like sarcasm, and it looks like conflict, and it looks like gossip. That's what murder looks like in the day in and day out. What is lost in the theoretical questions that we looked at last week of what, are, what is or is not murder is this, is that there is a seed of murderous rage in every human heart. Given the right circumstances and the right conditions, you are, you are very, very capable of evil of this great evil. And Jesus gives us three things that we should be considered or considered to be carrying out of murder here in Matthew chapter 5, 21 and 22. We're just going to look at three quick words. We'll pop on the screen at various times. But the first word that we see about what is how Matthew 5 in, in diving into the heart of murder says, if you say raka, if you say raka, then you are a murderer. You've violated the sixth commandment. Now, the ESV doesn't really give the literal Aramaic term raka there. It actually says, the ESV says, whoever insults another person but the NIV gives the Aramaic term, which is raka. And what raka literally means is you're a nobody. In other words, to treat, it is murderous to treat someone as if they are a nobody, as if they are not worth your time and attention, treating someone as a nobody. Now, why would Jesus be saying that? It's not the, actually the, the kind of thing that you say to someone if you're angry at them. Like none of you have been in a fight with your spouse and gone, raka, raka. You're a raka. No. The answer what Jesus is talking about here is hostility. It's not a cold, angry, uh, active hostility. What it is, it's a cold indifference. That's what is at the heart of murder. That's what raka is. Now, that is scary now, isn't it? He is saying that the breaking of the commandment is thou, not just thou shalt not murder, but it's also breaking of the commandment if you neglect, if you avoid, if you look through somebody, if you don't care about who they are as an image bearer, if you treat that person as if they're not there, then you have broken the sixth commandment. That's what rock is. This indifference is the basic kernel, the seed form of hate and murderousness. And when you think of someone as less than they are made to be, which is an image bearer of God, something glorious to behold and sacred, and that is the beginning of a murderous spirit. The second thing it says, in check, talking about our murderous hearts, it says if you say the word fool, fool. The Greek word here is actually moros. If you say, you moros. Now, what do you think, what do you think English, what English word is, have we d- derived from that word, that Greek word? Moron. Isn't that a fun word to say? I think it's really fun to call someone a moron. I, I, but, but this is but we're, this is what we this is the issue. We're not supposed to call someone a fool, a moron. It is translated as fool or idiot. 
In other words, what it's saying is you're insulting someone or calling them a derogatory name. In other words, you're treating them and speaking to them in a way that is lesser than their place as an image bearer and special in God's creation. To say someone is a fool. And what is our weapon of choice? What is our weapon of choice for our normal murderousness? What is it? It's the tongue, isn't it, right? It says, if you say fool, it is the use of the tongue in such a way that slanders and cuts down. Proverbs says our words are like the thrusts of swords. They are daggers and murderous weapons. We destroy each other with what we say. What Jesus is saying here and what he's referring to here is the power of the tongue to rip someone down. To murder means to tear down someone's reputation. That's the gossip piece. That's why gossip in our ordinary activities can be be considered to be murderous. But more than that, in the way you have possibly experienced is this, is when someone takes the, their sharpened sword of a tongue and says something to you that cuts you down to size. Murderousness. A murder of the spirits. When you get someone to believe that they are worthless. When you have put a stinger dagger in their heart that no surgeon in this world can remove. That is murderous. Remember the kids in my youth group used to call a girl in our, in our youth group Skeeter. You know why they called her Skeeter? Because of the nature of all the acne that she had. That's murderous. Convincing of someone because of their appearance that they are lesser, they are something that is not worthy to the name image bearer, this is murderous. Have you kept the sixth commandment? I haven't. I haven't kept the sixth commandments. I don't even keep the sixth commandment about speaking about my kids. And what's the last one? The last one gets, man, the last one really cuts deep. Verse 22, what does it say? At the heart of murder is anger. It's raka, it's foolishness, and it's anger. Verse 22 says, but I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Let me repeat it again. Everyone, now real quick, what is, who does that include? Let's be really clear. Everyone. Everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Man, Jesus says your problem is that you think you don't kill someone, then you have kept this commandment. He says you have no idea. He says the real important is the deeper is in within you is are there seeds of anger within your heart and within your soul. And let me tell you something. We are an angry people. In fact, as conservative Christians, we are known for our anger, aren't we? We live not just, we're not just an angry church, we're an angry people, an angry world. We are angry at those in traffic. We're angry at the dog. We're angry at our kids for being kids. We're angry at our roommates for not doing the dishes. We're angry at those at work who get recognition over us. We are angry at our parents. We're angry at the person at church who just happens to still be a sinner. We're angry at our politicians, and we're really angry at someone else's politicians. We are an angry people. We are people who, frankly, who love to be anger. We savor anger, who suck on it like a pacifier. In fact, we live on anger as our main form of emotional sustenance for many, many decades. Some of you have been angry for years and years and years. If, there was, if we, we broke you down, there would be nothing left but anger. Listen, there, this is how so many of us live our lives. We have things that wounds of our past that we remembered and instead of bringing in the life of forgiveness we have nurtured those wounds and we have let it develop deep anger and bitterness within us you know there, there was a guy a number of years ago who killed two policemen actually over 50 years ago he killed two policemen 
But a number of years ago, uh, he was found. Now, in the, in the course of the, the years since he had, had killed these two policemen in a, in, a, in, a, in a wreck and driven off, he had gone on to live a fairly normal life. He got married and had a family and had grandchildren. And it was a cold case that got opened back up. And they found this man in a retirement community in South Carolina. And they brought him to justice in California. And in the midst of the trials, the man got up and said this, I am horrified by what I have done. He apologized. He said he was willing to accept any sentence. And in the course of the case, they had the families of the two policemen who had been killed by this man. They got up and they got a chance to speak about how what he had done has affected them. And when the family got their chance, they were full of rage. And here's what one of them said. You will never be forgiven. We hope you burn in the fires of hell. They were angry. You see, there was more than one murderer in that court that day. And it wasn't just the one who was standing on trial. So many of us have been murdering our parents and our children and our friends and our roommates and ex-boyfriends and ex-girlfriends and co-workers day in and day out because we are angry at them. We are so angry. So we may have never killed somebody, but can you honestly say that in your anger, in your anger you have been righteous? You have been righteous? So let me ask you this. After walking through those three I ask you the question, how are you doing at keeping the Sixth Commandment? How are you doing? How did you do this morning at keeping the Sixth Commandment? Trying to, I get angry every time I try to stick little toddler limbs into a car seat. It makes me furious and angry. I get, I'm angry all the time. Well, you know what? I got bad news for you. It gets worse. That's just point one. Point two. Not only are we murderers every day because of the, the well, how deep the, the commandment goes, but also because of the extent to which it's supposed to be called to our lives. The sixth commandment is not just about what is negative. It also requires you to live a loving life. The sixth commandment requires a loving life. Let me look, look at this. Paul gives us the summary of the law in Romans chapter 13, verses 9 and 10. Here's what he says. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. He's literally quoting the Ten Commandments. And any other commandment are summed up in this word... You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, he says. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Real quick, and this is just a, a, an overview, a biblical theological overview. There are those who, in this church maybe who have debated the issue of why in the world are we looking at an Old Testament, Old, the Ten Commandments. It's not relevant to us. This is to go back to the beginning of the series. Um, and they say, we, they quote passages where it talks about we live under a law of love. Well, listen, then I would quote to you Romans chapter 13, verse 10, that if you want to have the law of love in your heart, then you actually have to have the law. The fulfilling of the law is love, and the fulfilling of love is the law. So love does no wrong to a neighbor. But did you get what he says, how he summarizes it down? You don't want to be a murderer. How do you keep the sixth commandment? It's boiled down to this, what? Love your neighbor. It means this. The principle is this. If you are loveless, then you are a murderer. Lovelessness is murdering. Love is the fulfillment, the true fulfillment, the end of the fulfillment of the sixth commandment. The commandments are stated negatively primarily in the Ten Commandments as it's given to us in Exodus and Deuteronomy. But they imply the positive. 
They imply the positive. Therefore, the command not to murder also implies this, that we are not just to not to just not take life, but we're to promote life, we're to preserve life, we're to value life. We'll see this in the coming weeks. When we look at adultery, right? Adultery, I haven't cheated on my wife, I'm good. Oh yeah? Well, here's what the, the positive commandment of the seventh commandment would be this. Oh, you've actually actively sought her interests. You have promoted her. You have laid down your life for her. Have you actually kept the seventh commandment? Because the seventh commandment is not simply don't be unfaithful to your wife. It's be faithful to your wife. Be faithful to your vows. Don't steal. I'm good. I don't steal. I don't steal. I'm honest on my expense report at work. I don't cheat on my taxes. Great. But are you generous? Are you generous? Love is the fulfillment of the sixth commandment. It is a command not just to not take life, but to promote the welfare of others, even our enemies, even those who have hurt us. It is, so we break the sixth commandment when we do what? Nothing. When we do nothing. Listen, you can go home and you can lock yourself in the basement, you can put the sheets over your head and you can not get out and you would still be breaking the sixth commandment because you are doing nothing to promote the welfare of your brothers and sisters of your neighbors. And the implication of this, implications of this are endless, right? For it, it, it's, it's, it means significant things for the way in which you treat the impoverished people around you. For example, one of the most scathing verses in all the Bible is James chapter 5 and verses 1 and 5. Here's what it says. Here's what James says, come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Verse 5, you have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence, and you have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. In other words, what he's saying is this, is there are people in this world who are being murdered. There are unborn who are being taken every day to, to mills of death, and you are doing nothing except sitting around and enjoying your wealth. There are impoverished people who are starving to death and who have no good water, and yet you are living in luxury. This is not saying you can't have wealth. What it's saying is, what are you using it for? James is saying that these rich considered, and this is so damning, that the rich, consi rich considered convenience to be more important than the lives of the poor. That is the, actually the principle of the Good Samaritan. That convenience gets in the way of the poor. He's talking about people who turn a deaf ear to those in need, who went about pursuing the American dream, so to speak. The convenience, piling up stuff, totally oblivious to the cries of help from those around them. Turning a deaf ear to the sufferings of poor is to participate in murder. It goes on for the Christian. For the Christian who has a responsibility to share the gospel, Ezekiel chapter 33, verses 6 through 8, is pretty damning to us. Here's what it says. He's talking to Ezekiel the prophet, and God's call upon his life, and he says this, but if the watchman sees the sword coming, in other words, if an enemy is coming to take down a city and does not blow the trumpet so that the people are not warned, and the sword comes and takes any one of them, that person is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at the watchman's hands. What is he saying? What's the principle of that for New Testament believers? If you don't share the gospel... Blood is on your hands. Not giving the gospel to those whom God has sent you is a type of murderousness. Not giving the heart, having the heart to care about the eternal destiny of those around you is heartless. It is murderous. And so let me ask you something. Are you doing something? It is, you have not kept the sixth commandment if, if, if all you've done is just not kill somebody. Are you doing something 
to bring about the preservation of life, to encourage others. Someone once told me that every time you mention Hitler, you lose the argument. So I'm reluctant to bring this up. But there is a question that all of us, when we look at the great mass murderous activities in the world, we have to ask ourselves this, is what would we have done in those situations? For example, I mean, you wonder how, you ever wonder, I mean, you just look at the, the, the atrocities of World War II and you wonder, how in the world did that happen? How in the world, it, it couldn't have been, the, the atrocities in the genocidal machine was so large and so extravagant that one couldn't say, well, it was just a few bad apples. There had to be something, there was essentially a promiscuousness, an allowance by the whole of all people to allow this to go on. You kind of wonder, what would you have done? What would you have done had you been in the 1930s and 40s Germany? If you study the history of genocidal movements, it's alarming the patterns of those who just kind of sat aside and took passive approaches to what was going on around them. For example, in 1994, in the span of 100 days, the Hutu majority in Rwanda rose up and managed to slaughter 800,000 Tutsi men, women, and children with what? With bombs? No, with garden tools and machetes and bicycle handlebars. How was a malevolent colonel able to engage and to slaughter that many people in that short of time? There had to be other people who were participating in it. It wasn't just one bad apple. We like to think we are above these things. We like to think we would have been the exception. We like to think that we would have stood up and we would have done something, that we would have done something to promote life. Let me ask you this. Are you standing up right now? There's over 50 million children who've been slaughtered in our country in the last 50 years. What are you doing about that? Listen, yelling at the, at the TV screen while you watch Fox News is not doing something. And frankly, voting is, is nice, but actually voting and actually holding your politicians accountable when they say I'm against abortion and yet continue to have $500 million in a budget for Planned Parenthood, that is not doing anything. You have to hold those people accountable. That's doing something. Do something. We got to do something. Martin Niemöller, he said this, he became the leader of the German resistance movement against Hitler in the 1940s, but earlier on, he was a supporter of Hitler. And he said this, he, taught, he has this famous quote that goes like this. He said, first they came for the communists, but I didn't speak up because I wasn't a communist. Then they came for the socialists, but I didn't speak out because I wasn't a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists, but I didn't speak out because I wasn't a trade unionist. Then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. He's saying that we have complicity in what Pope John Paul called the culture of death. Our complicity takes the passive form of doing nothing. It is of apathy. Jesus said, what you did to the least of these, you did unto me. You did under me. So are you some, a Christian who is doing something? Or are you happy with your settled little life simply not murdering, and that's enough? Nicholas Kristof, he's a liberal communist for the New York Times. He writes a letter, actually, in the New York Times, chastising liberals for their hatred of Christianity. And his, his article was entitled, Evangelicals, Even Liberals Can Love. He said this, Conservative Christian churches are doing superb work all over the world in poverty and AIDS and sex trafficking and climate change and primitive abuse and malaria and genocide. He said, in parts of Africa where bandits and warlords shoot and rape anything that moves, you often find the only two groups still operating in these sectors of the world are doctors without borders and Christian aid workers. It's a bunch of crazy doctors and a bunch of crazy Christians. 
In the town of Rusharu in the war-ravaged Congo, I found starving children, raped widows, and shell-shocked survivors, but I also found a determined Catholic nun from Poland serenely running a church clinic. So let me ask you this. Are you a crazy Christian? A crazy Christian who would be so crazy as to actually keep the Sixth Commandment. To keep the Sixth Commandment. Brothers and sisters, it is, it, we, we don't need to be less Christian. We need to be more Christian. We need to actually get the Ten Commandments. What can you do? You could care for your neighbor. You could foster a child. You could tutor a child in our schools. You could adopt an orphan. You could get involved in fighting sex trafficking. Or you can simply do what the next couple of verses in Matthew 5 say, which is make restoration with a brother who has something against you. The encouragement of life. But here's what you may not do. You may not do nothing. You may not do nothing. So how are you doing keeping the Sixth Commandments? How are you doing? How do we become a people who actually keep the Sixth Commandment in the fullness of what it's meant to be? Ones who value life and who preserve life and who seek to give life. How do we become Sixth Commandment keepers in this way? Well, one of the reasons, what are the reasons we don't keep the Sixth Commandment? Well, a lot of it is simply because we have, we're apathetic. Listen, last week, the whole heart of the Sixth Commandment is what? Is that we are made, there's sanctity to life, that God values life, and we're image bearers. And frankly, you couldn't give a care that you're sitting on a row with image bearers. We're apathetic. And said, in fact, we'd rather do the things that just simply make this image bearer comfortable instead of caring for the ones around us. But then we do, what makes it worse is we also, these other image bearers do things that really make us mad. Like they hurt our feelings. And they offend us. And they do things that are often legitimately terrible things. And so how in the world do we have a heart of love, not anger, towards those who have done these things to us? How do we have the seeds of murderousness rooted out of our hearts? Listen, it's, let me give you two things I think that we need to have happen to us. First is this. I want to say this. I, first what we need is we need to be shocked by the trauma of conviction. In other words, what this means is you don't, you don't put your hands over your ears while I talk, tell you about how, how, how difficult it is to keep the Sixth Commandment. In Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2, in the first, one of the first sermon post the ascension and the giving of the Spirit of Pentecost, Peter goes out and he gathers anyone who might have any interest in hearing him, and he says this in the most non-seeker-friendly sermon ever. He stands up a bunch of Jews and says, you killed it. You killed. You murdered Jesus. You've been waiting for hundreds and thousands of years for the Messiah to come, the one who would forgive you of your sins and lead you into freedom, and you took him and you put him on a cross. You did it. You did it. We are not only murderers, but we murdered our Savior. That's what he said to them. And what was their response in Acts chapter 2? What do we do? What must we be, do to be saved? Never was our murderous more, murderousness more on display than when we crucified God's son. There is nothing quite like the earth-shaking, mirror-reflecting experience of when we experience this, that when we see that we need our sin of murder forgiven. And that's what the people in Acts chapter 2 faced, the trauma of who they really were. See, if you want to you know the deepest meaning of the sixth commandment, then you must know this, that you are capable of murder. Not only that, but you're guilty of it. You're guilty of it. And for the most, for many of us, we have cultivated around us for almost the entirety of our lives an approach to life that is shaped around convincing ourselves that we are actually innocent. 
protecting ourselves from having to face the the fact that we are murderers. And therefore, what we must experience is the grace of the trauma of being awoken from our self-delusion. So may I say to you this morning, may this traumatic event of having the murderousness and the blood get of your life revealed, may you see it face to face. Dwight L. Moody has a a famous story where he talks about his son. His son is coming in from playing outside and he's about, they're about to go out someplace and he tells his son that he's filthy dirty, that he's got mud all over his, just kind of dirt and soot all over his face. And he says, son, you need to go wash your face. And his son said, "I'm, I'm not dirty. I don't need to go wash my face. A few minutes later, he comes back, son, you need to go wash your face. My face is fine. I'm clean. Son, go wash your face. Once again, he balks. And so D.L. Mui picks up his son by the scruff of his neck, picks him up and holds him up in front of a mirror and says, look at your face. Matthew chapter 5 is the experience of God saying, look at your face. Look at your hands. Can you really say I have no blood on my hands? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And therefore, therefore, what you must say along with the abortionists and along with the one who's had an abortion, along with the person who has taken their own life and the person who facilitated that in a medical clinic, along with the college student who was texting and driving and killed someone, you must hear with your own voice saying this, my name is blank and I am a murderer. That is the trauma of conviction. That is the trauma of conviction. I hope you're feeling low right now. That is the intention That is the intention. But second, if you're to be a keeper of life, we can't leave you there, can we? Came across a movie, I forget if this is on Amazon, it was one of those like late night just trying to find something to watch. And which is right, don't do that, it's bad. It's not good. Um, It's a bad move, it's not wise. But I did find this interesting movie, it's called Remember. And it it stars Christopher Plummer who, who plays a man who is, well he's, he has a Jewish name and um, claims to have lived through the Holocaust, and he is in an assisted living facility with another Jewish man. And they, they find out about a, a guy named Rudy Kiplard, who is, um, they find four of them in the United States, and, and Rudy Kiplard was the, the, the prison guard from their concentration camp who killed many of their family and friends. And these two old Jewish men are going to go on this this. this, this kind of journey, or Christopher Plummer is, Zev is, in order to find these four men and find out which one is the actual guards. And if he finds the actual one, he's going to kill him, even in his old age. So he finds the first three, and none of them are their old guard that they remember. And eventually he comes to this house and this place. And through a series of various things that his other friend had set up, Zev comes to remember this, that he had convinced himself that he was a Jewish man, when in reality he was actually Rudy Kiplard's. And in that moment of being faced with the trauma of the fact that he was actually the prison guards, he takes a gun and he shoots himself in the head. Now, if I leave you here, that's what you're going to do. So we can't leave you here. So you have to be convicted. You have to have the trauma of conviction. But second, we also have to, you have to have this. In order to actually become a keeper of life, then you must be awestruck by the one who forgives murderers. You've got to be awestruck by the one who forgives murders. You have to see that you deserve capital punishment. We looked at that last week, right? Why, why in Genesis 9? 
Why is, what's the foundation of capital punishment? We're not necessarily saying, right, all forms of it and the way it's applied here is necessarily right or wrong. That's a different discussion, but the foundation of it is given, the principle is given in Genesis chapter nine. The capital punishment is given there because why? Because the value of life is so, so very precious. And the only thing that is, lives up to actually paying for taking a life is to have your life taken. But, so you're, you deserve capital punishment. You deserve for God to look at you and mock you and call you a fool and say you are nothing to me. That's what you deserve. You deserve for God to take your very life, but then you have, to, you have the murderous seeds. You have to have those murderous seeds melted out of you. Then you must see that Jesus took the capital punishment that you deserved. Let me tell you this story as we come to a close this morning. In waiting through the aftermath of South Africa's apartheid, there were public trials that were run by what was called the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission, something we could use in America. These trials were meant to bring the light, the, light, the true core of the South African apartheid, and bring about real restitution and justice. And there is a famous story that depicts this scene from a courtroom. It goes like this. There was a frail black woman who rose slowly to her feet, and she was something something well into her 70 years of age. Facing across the room are several white police officers, one of whom was a Mr. Vanderbeck. He's just been tried and found implicated in the murders of this old woman's son and her husband from years before. Several years earlier, he had come to the woman's home. He had taken her son, and there right in front of her shot him at point-blank range in the head. And then he and his other policemen took the young man's body and they set it on fire and pulled out liquor bottles and had a discussion while they drank as her son's body burned. Several years later, Mr. Vanderbrecht came back and he took away her husband as well. For many a month, she heard nothing about the whereabouts of her husband, where he had been. Then almost two years after her husband's disappearance, Mr. Vanderbrecht came back and he got her this time. How vividly she said she remembered that evening going to a place beside a river where she was shown her husband. He was freshly beaten and lying on a pile of wood. And the last words she heard from her husband's lips as the officers poured oil over his body and set him aflame was him screaming, Father, Father, forgive them. So now this old woman stands in the courtroom and listens to the confessions offered by Mr. Vanderbreck. And a member of the South Africa's Truth and Reconciliation Commission turns to her and asks, so what would you like to have done to him? What is justice? What would be justice for you? How should justice be done to this man who has so brutally destroyed your family? And she said this, I want three things. I want first to be taken to the place where my husband's body was burned so that I can gather up the dust and give his remains a decent burial. Then she paused and then continued, my husband and my son were my only family. Therefore, I want secondly for Mr. Vanderbrecht to become my son. I would like for him to come twice a month to the ghetto and spend a day with me so that I can pour out on him whatever love I still have remaining in me. And finally, she said, I want a third thing, and that is to fulfill the wish of my dying husband. And so I would kindly ask that someone come to my side and lead me across the courtroom so that I can take Mr. Vanderbreck in my arms and embrace him so that he might know he is truly forgiven. What happens when sinners, the sinners of this world, condemn the Son of God to die on a pile of wood? What did he cry out? 
Father, forgive them. And what does the father do with those who murdered his son? He makes them his children. And he draws them into an embrace so that they might know they are forgiven. And he gathers them together around a table and says, you are my family, come and eat. That was the message of Acts chapter 2, the first sermon that Peter preaches. You are the murderers. And yet forgiveness is for you. Would you come and you gather and you eat? May the truth of this, may your soul be awakened to the truth of what you have committed in your heart and your life and with your words and with your apathy. But may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ dissolve the seeds of anger. So that you may look at the brothers and sisters in this room. You see, it goes on to say in Matthew chapter 5 that if you know your brother has something against you, that you go and deal with that first before you come and lay down your sacrifice. Therefore, what this means is this. The only means by which you're going to be able to extend forgiveness, to lay aside the anger and the bitterness that resides so deeply within your soul is this, is to have the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and his forgiveness melt the seeds of anger and hatred from your hearts. And then go and do likewise. And then gather together, around a table where we remember what it costs to make us sons and daughters of the king. Let's pray. Those who are serving communion, will you please come up and join me? Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. A grace that comes with the severe mercy of traumatizing us about our sin. Gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that, that the sheer shock of this, of how deep our murderousness goes, that, Lord, it would not be so overwhelming that we would just turn our, our eyes away and not address it. But, Lord, instead it would bring us to our knees and make us cry out, as the people of Israel did in Acts chapter 2, what shall we do? What shall we do? And so, gracious God, I thank you that when we, you at, when we ask that question, that you are there to extend to us the grace and mercy. To extend mercy to those who are, who are murderers in this world and say, come and be my children. Forgiveness is yours. Come and enjoy my embrace. So, gracious Heavenly Father, as a family of murderers, we gather around a table to remember the one that we murdered to remember the goodness of our Savior and our King, the one who laid down his body and like the bread we eat was broken for us and the cup that represents his blood that was spilled to cleanse us of that sin. So Lord, we set aside these basic, this basic bread, basic juice, and ask that your spirit would do something mightily within us that you would drive home into us the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and that that would melt our hearts of angry stone. Would you do that through this meal this morning? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.